Turn to Matthew 28. <clears throat> and before we get started, I just want to mention, if you didn't get a chance to pick up one of these forgiveness booklets, they are on the cafe tables in the back of this room. If you haven't read this, I'd encourage you to do it and pick it up and read it. This afternoon at the church picnic, after we've had a chance to hang out with each other, maybe play some games, eat too much, we're going to baptize about a dozen people. In obedience to Jesus' instructions to his disciples, we will take each of these people into the water and under the water, and we'll do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you think about it, it's kind of an odd thing to do. Oh, you've chosen to begin a new life? That's great. Let me stick your head underwater. I mean, really, isn't it kind of strange? In the past, our baptisms have often been done in public places, <clears throat> on the beach, public pool, <clears throat> busy lake with speedboats and jet skis zooming by. Even now, whenever I meet with somebody about baptism, I encourage them to invite their friends and their relatives to their baptism. But I wonder what people who know nothing about baptism think. I mean, it looks like I'm pushing someone underwater and holding them down. We held a baptism at Heritage Park a few years ago and rented the pool out. And uh, with the pool, they have to have staff, lifeguards, so the lifeguards are on duty. Did they tense up, I wonder? <laughs> Did they think they might have to jump in when they saw this crazy guy holding a woman down underwater? What do they make of this strange thing that we do? If you're one of the people getting baptized today, I don't really push people, and I don't hold them underwater. I help them underwater, and when the bubbles stop coming up, I help them back out. <laughs> now, really, it's perfectly safe, but it will make you wonderfully dangerous. Still, one could be forgiven for wondering why Jesus told his disciples to do this to people. When I was in elementary school, I was briefly the vice president of the boys' club, a boys' club. So there used to be those things in those days. A um, few boys would get together, they'd start a club, the Girl Haters Club, the, the Blood Brothers, the tribe, whatever. I think there were just three or four of us in the club, which is how I got to be vice president. And it only lasted about a week. We had a secret sign to identify ourselves, but I can't remember what it was. It's, I know, a handshake or a code word or something. Is that what baptism is? The secret sign of those who've joined the insurgency of love? Whenever they met someone who might be part of the insurgency, did they say enigmatically, have you come through the water? Yeah, I've come through the water. Oh, you're one of us. When I speak or teach, or even just talk about baptism, it's pretty common for someone to say, oh, but you don't have to be baptized to be saved. And then they mention the thief on the cross who never had the chance to be baptized, but was nevertheless told by Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. I wonder what they mean by be saved. I suspect it means go to heaven after you die. But you know what? I'll grant them their point gladly. Still, I wonder what they're so worried about. If they're worried that we might be teaching that water baptism is a soul-saving requirement and add on to faith in Christ, they can relax. We're not and wouldn't think of it. But if they're saying that baptism is a mere option for Jesus' people, 
kind of take it or leave it really doesn't matter kind of thing, then I'm worried. If they think Jesus' instructions aren't important unless they're about getting you into heaven, do they also think that Jesus' instructions on truthfulness, on love, on forgiveness, on self-denial are unimportant? We baptize, frankly, we baptize because Jesus expects us to. The early church was completely convinced of this. When St. Peter on the day of Pentecost was asked what his hearers should do about Jesus, what should we do? He told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When people in Samaria came to faith in Messiah Jesus because Philip the evangelist was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, people were baptized, both men and women. And that was extraordinary. Women, too. When the first Gentiles came to Christ in Acts 10, Peter ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When Saul, later to become Paul, believed in Jesus, the first thing he did was get baptized. The first European convert, a woman named Lydia, came to faith in a Bible study. We read, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and she and the members of her house were baptized. The early followers of Jesus did not see baptism as a take it or leave it, really doesn't matter kind of thing. They knew baptism was important. But why was it important? What did it mean? When after his resurrection, Jesus met his people on the mountain, that's how the Greek has it, the mountain in Galilee, the one he arranged to meet the man. How did they understand what he said to them? This is Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Literally, therefore going. It's not a command. Therefore going. Here's the only command in this whole passage. Make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We read that. We tend to think Jesus was sending his disciples on a mission trip. But that is a late Western Christian idea read back into this text. If Jesus was telling the disciples to head down to the docks and book passage on the first cruise ship to the mission field, they either didn't understand him or they were downright insubordinate. But I think they understood him. We need to put this passage into context, which we preachers don't often take the time to do. Remember that Jesus was crucified and on the third day was raised from the dead. And over the next 40 days, he met with his disciples and talked to them about the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, the establishment of God's rule on earth, was the subject of their 40-day study program. Which is why the disciples asked Jesus in Acts 1-6 if he was going to restore the kingdom at that time. So when Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, they understood that in a kingdom context. We understand it abstractly. They understood it within the kingdom context. When we read those words, 
Our minds don't go where the apostles' minds went. Daniel 7. When Jesus announced that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, the words of the prophet Daniel were echoing in their minds. Daniel wrote about one like a son of man, Jesus' favorite self-designation, a son of man who was led into the presence of the ancient of days where, and this is what the disciples understood Jesus was talking about, where he was given, this is Daniel seven fourteen, authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, Jesus was instructing his disciples for the last 40 days, really the last three years in the kingdom of God. We may miss the point when he announces that all authority has been given to him. The disciples did not. Now, here's some important background that they knew that we might not know. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king of Israel. Herod had been appointed governor of just the province of Galilee, but when he was just 25 years old. Later, because he fought valiantly in the Roman wars, the Senate conferred on him the title King of the Jews. So remember when the Magi came and said, where is he was born King of the Jews? Boy, did that click with him. In 37 BC, he left Israel went to Rome to be crowned by the emperor Octavius. His coronation didn't take place in Israel, the country of the Jews. It took place in the seat of power in Rome. That story was not unique to Herod. Other vassal kings had done the same thing. They went to the seat of power to receive a kingdom and authority to rule was given to them. Here's what we miss. But the early church understood perfectly well, Jesus did the same thing. After his resurrection, he went to the seat of power, heaven, and was crowned king. He's the rightful king of the earth, but his coronation didn't take place on earth. It took place in heaven. In theological parlance, his return to heaven and his coronation are called the ascension. We use the term the same way when we read the history books. And they say he ascended to the throne in 1038. After Herod was crowned king, guess what he did? He returned from Rome to Israel to take up his rule. And Jesus will return from heaven to earth to take up his rule. This is what the biblical writers understood had happened and would happen. They knew two things. It would be some time before Jesus returned, though they didn't know how long. They didn't have any idea how long, but they knew he'd gone to heaven and he would return. And that he had already been crowned king. That was why St. Peter said on the day of Pentecost for King David did not ascend to heaven. He didn't go get crowned as king of the earth. 
And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, where the word Christ is almost synonymous with, in the minds of these readers, king. In Peter's first letter, we read, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. St. Paul says, God seated him, talking about Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. This is what we miss, that the early church understood. They regarded Jesus as the rightful king of the world, which is why they were accused of turning the world upside down and of defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, King Jesus is telling his key leaders what to do to prepare for his return and coming rule. That's what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission launches the great campaign in which the followers of Jesus work from within the kingdoms of this world to prepare for the return of the legitimate king. In that sense, we're all subversives. Now, they don't do so by armed rebellion or political activism, but by recruiting and training new members of the insurgency, that is, new citizens of the kingdom of God. In other words, they make disciples. Disciples are recruits loyal to King Jesus, living as his agents in the world. But they're not only recruits, they are trainees. They're apprentices, they're learners. They are learning how to live for Jesus in the Jesus way, and they start by being baptized. Jesus doesn't tell us to give his new recruits, disciples, a secret handshake, but to baptize them because baptism is full of meaning. In baptism, the person is buried underwater. That's why we immerse. I don't have any argument with people who do it in other ways. But we immerse and bury that person underwater because that means something. She dies. Her old life is resolutely left behind. She begins a new life now as Jesus' person. Baptism is a decisive, intentional break with the God-less or God-light life. I'm not living that way anymore. I belong to God, to Jesus. Baptism is a public yes to Jesus. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has called baptism a sacrament. The Latin word sacramentum, a bunch of theological definitions have grown up and a lot of accretions around the word sacrament. But the Latin word, when Paul was writing, sacramentum, referred to the oath a Roman soldier took when he joined the military. He took his sacramentum. 
he swore to be obedient unto death. Our baptism is a sacramentum. We decisively join Jesus no matter what it's going to cost us. In baptism, a person leaves his old life behind just as Israel left Egypt behind when they crossed the Red Sea. In fact, St. Paul says the Israelites were baptized, as 1 Corinthians 10, into Moses and the Red Sea. They were joined to him. After the deliverance of the Red Sea, their destiny was all tied up with his. The same is true when we are baptized into Jesus. Our destiny is all tied up with his. That's why Charles Wesley wrote, So are we now where Christ is led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. We are all tied up with him. Baptism reminds us we are inseparable from Jesus. This is the heart of baptism. In Romans 6, when Paul speaks of baptism, he says in verse 4, and notice the word with in these next verses. He says in verse 4 that we were buried with him through baptism. In verse 5, that we were united with him twice. In verse 6, we were crucified with him. In verse 8, we died with him. And if that's not impressive enough, listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. We died with him, 2 Timothy 2.11. We're buried with him. That's again in Colossians 2.12. Made alive with him, Colossians 2.13. And Ephesians 2.5. Raised with him, Ephesians 2.6. My baptism speaks of the union of my life with Jesus' life. And if you are also united to Jesus, my baptism speaks of the union of my life with yours. Baptism means we have a new identity. I'm no longer my own man. I'm kingdom issue now. I'm still Don Looper's son, but that's no longer the foundation of my identity. I've been given a new identity. And baptism speaks of that. Prior to New Testament times, prior to John and Jesus, the kind of baptism we know was only performed, only, on Gentile converts to Judaism. A Gentile man would take off all his clothes with a group of men, go into the baptismal waters, and come out naked as he was on the day he was born, and they said he'd been reborn, this time as a Jew. Baptism pictures our rebirth this time as Jesus' family. In the Catholic Church, a child is given his Christian name at baptism because baptism is about identity. So St. Paul could say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Look, all things are new. Jesus instructed his followers to baptize disciples, kingdom recruits, keep that in mind, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There, that is more than dunking people while saying a formula over them. The Greek word baptizo 
simply means to immerse. It was used, for example, of a ship that had sunk. It was baptized. To do that in the name of the triune God means to immerse recruits in God's life and character. That is, in the reality of who and what God is. This is the church's number one job. Jesus wanted his apostles to teach people how to live their lives in God's presence, just as he had taught them. A baptized person eventually comes out of the water, but he or she never comes out of the God-bathed life. They live a baptized life. You don't just get baptized. You begin a baptized life. Jesus wanted his leaders to bring their people, their work, their play, their family, their relationships, their leisure, their trouble, everything, into the environment of God's life and presence. A fish lives surrounded by water. The baptized person lives surrounded by God. There is nothing in a Jesus follower's life of which he or she can say, this doesn't have anything to do with God. Everything has to do with God. Everything. This is very different from religion as popularly conceived. The disciples, recruits, apprentices, call them what you want, are to learn how to live in and count on God's presence at work, at home, with others, when alone, when sick, when healthy, all the time. Outside this reality of living in God's presence, discipleship to Jesus is simply impossible. That's why we have such a hard time with it. Churches often try to make disciples by teaching them, this is verse 20, Matthew 28, 20, everything Jesus taught. There are two problems with that. One, that's not what Jesus said. He told his leaders to teach the recruits to obey everything he taught. Reading the Bible, even learning the Bible, teaching the Bible, memorizing the Bible, misses the point if we aren't obeying Jesus. You can read the Bible till the cows come home. If you don't do what Jesus says, it doesn't help. The second problem is even more foundational than that is that no one can learn to obey what Jesus said who hasn't learned to live as Jesus lived, immersed in the reality of the present and powerful God. Baptism in water expresses that. It's our response to God's invitation to live the with God, in God life. Maybe you were baptized a long time ago. I was baptized quite a while ago. And you're thinking, which was true of me, nobody told me any of this stuff. Well, you've been told now. 
Start living this way today. An agent of the insurgency of love. Ask for God's support and you will have it. That's what the disciples heard Jesus saying. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You have the support you need to do this. If you were baptized as a believer, now it's it's another matter if you were an unbeliever and you just got dunked because somebody told you you should. If you were baptized as a believer, you don't need to be baptized again. You need to re-up to tell Jesus from now on, from now on, I will be your person. I want to learn how to live from you. Learn to live your way. Be an agent of your king, an, an operative in the insurgency. I want to learn from you how to live in the presence of God and never go out. If you have not been baptized, are you ready to join up? Are you ready to confess Jesus as your Lord, the King? Are you ready to join him and his people? If you are, and you can testify to your faith in Jesus, we'll baptize you today. But you need to talk to me. I have some papers up here that I'll hand to you. I only have a few of them this service, but I'll get you one if we run out about what baptism is and what it means. So we're just scratching the surface here, but it's a surface that many people haven't seen. If you want to be baptized, you want to say you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him, you're ready to join up, get baptized. Whether you have been baptized or not, know this. The revolution began of all places on a cross. Who would have thought it? That's where King Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and triumphed over them. It was there that the baptized life, the life immersed in God, was made possible. Jesus, as St. Peter said long ago, has brought us to God, and he did it through the cross. Now let's pray. God, if we lived a million years, we never would have figured this out without you telling us. Who would have thought that the decisive battle was won on a cross? But you have done this for us. And Lord, we have messed around with so many other things. And we've been gasping for breath because we don't live in the air of the triune God. Would you change that in our lives now and forever? And Lord, I pray that today when people are baptized, it will be a transcendent moment in their lives. powerful for your church.
And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.